Huye. Huye. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Good morning. Happy Monday morning, June the 19th, to all of you out there listening to us. On the radio dollar on the free game mobile app, we appreciate you making us part of your morning. I'm not inside the Evco Development Studios. The producer extraordinaire Dawson Iserlow is because I'm here in Omaha. That's right, Omaha, Nebraska, home of the College World Series, literally less than a quarter of a mile away from old Rosenblatt Stadium is where we're housed at for today's show. And we got a great one lined up for you here as RP3 and Company is yet again on the road. We're going to, of course, dive into LSU beating Tennessee, advancing to the winner's bracket game against number one Wake Forest. That's right. The team that was the number one ranked team for most of the season gets to face off to the team that is ranked number one for the remainder of the season and for this tournament. Two Titans going to be duking it out at Charles Schwab Field tonight. And, of course, you can listen to that game live right here on the game. Pre-game is scheduled to begin at 5.30. First pitch, 6 o'clock. We're going to tackle a ton of different things. We're going to talk about the LSU side of things with Jeff Palermo and my man Dawson Iserlow, a man with ACC Connections, we got somebody else coming on as well that's going to give us the perspective from the Wake Four side. Who does that? Who is that, my friend? What's going on, RP3? Sorry about that. It's early on a Monday morning. You know, sometimes it takes a little bit of extra button pushing. Um, but by the way, we're going to have Connor O'Neill. <laughs> That's our guy from Wake Forest coming on to preview the Wake Forest side of things. Uh, we're all up and running and ready to go at this point. Good morning, Dawson. Good morning, we'll and happy there, Father's Day to you from oh, yesterday thank you. and to all the other fathers out thank there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there as well. So we got a lot to get to. Obviously, LSU Wake Forest tonight. We'll recap LSU in Tennessee. We'll talk about the U.S. Open. What a What a just – just kind of a letdown of an open it was from the course not playing tough and all of a sudden it was playing tough, but no fans were barely there. And then just, you know, Rory and Ricky had an opportunity and it doesn't happen. So we'll dive into that as well and so much more. But let's start off with LSU. First and foremost, if you haven't been to Omaha for the College World Series, I strongly recommend it. Had never been here, and the atmosphere is absolutely legit. Like, there is a great energy around the field, uh, not only because of all the night spots that are there after games that are loud and makes it feel like 
it's an absolute party going on, but it's just a huge amount of energy. 25,000 fans packed into the park. You can feel it. The park is magnificent. It is great. And what's even better is with LSU fans kind of dominating everything, including the Jello Shot Challenge, which they're obliterating already through the halfway point of the all-time record. And it just got through the first weekend because, you know, folks in Louisiana, we do a couple things very well, Dawson, and one of those is accept drinking challenges and destroying them. Yes, that wasn't in doubt. <laughs> it was never, never, never in doubt. But it's just not that. It is, you can tell these fan bases are coming from all across the country. There's a ton of LSU folks, saw a sea of purple and gold walking up to the stadium when – I came on Saturday, came a little bit early, and we just walked, uh, my buddy and mine, Tony, that came with me on the trip, and we just walked up a couple blocks away, Dawson, and you could feel it from there. Like, it was one of those things. I mean, there's parties and there's tailgating, and tons of people from Louisiana came up to tailgate, and but you can absolutely kind of like feel the energy from blocks away. And this is the second day of the College World Series. So it's electric. It really is. You feel it. It's kind of, it does feel special. And then we saw the type of performance that Paul Skeens put on there on Saturday. He was dominant. I mean, just absolutely magnificent in so many different ways. Double-digit strikeouts again for him. He gets to 200 for his season now at LSU. He passed David Price for second all-time in SEC history. Of course, David Price used to pitch for Vanderbilt. The only man standing in front of between him and the record now is LSU legend, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, Ben McDonald. He's two away from tying Ben's all-time record of 202 strikeouts in a season. So Skeens was dominant. Dylan Cruz got a couple of hits. He extended his reached base streak to 68 consecutive games. Uh, he's pretty good at playing baseball. But Skeens was absolutely phenomenal. Make no bones about that. But Dawson, the bottom of the lineup, they got 10 hits in this ballgame off of Tennessee's pitching. Five of the hits came from the 7-8-9 batters and Braden Jobert had himself a heck of a game one single shy of the cycle he got a double an RBI triple and a home run in this ball game as they were able to win the game six to three give me your thoughts of what you saw from afar of the LSU Tigers Jay Johnson's team opening up the College World Series with a win over Tennessee well getting back to what you mentioned about the atmosphere that's that was one thing that jumped out at me from the very first game of this tournament um, is that the atmosphere was fantastic. I was on my way to Houston um, for the first game the Oral Roberts TCU game and of course you know I've, I've, I've become fond of Oral Roberts and what they put together and when they hit the three run homer I uh, I was in the passenger seat and I almost caused us to get in an accident because I actually screamed get out in live in real time and it did get out and yeah that that kind of set the tone you always it's funny, too, the first game of a tournament like that can really kind of, you know, it's not going to derail the, the, the atmosphere if it's not a good game, but that just kind of helped, I think, get everybody really locked in and feeling good about what this World Series could be. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was followed up with another 
six to five ball game that night, and that just carried into Saturday. Now the weather was a factor, but not too much of a factor. So um, I thought that was that was solid. And Wake Forest, look, they used that weather delay to their advantage. Uh, it looks like, and were able to come out and get a clutch, timely hit. And that all kind of led into to the LSU game, which was, of course, the final game of the first round. And yeah, you know, it's it was a game that was it never felt in doubt. Tennessee threatened at times, but you know, never really looked like they were in danger of getting the big hit. They put up a couple of runs late there, but um, you felt like LSU was the better team coming in. And with Skeens on the mound, they knew they needed to win that game. That's another thing that we talked about last week. And you felt the sense of urgency from their side. You felt it early, and they carried the momentum. And now. Uh, kind of sets up what we expect to be the, you know, the, w- what we thought going in could be the game of the tournament, and we might see it more than once, but we'll see. We get our first shot at it tonight. The four opening games of this College World Series, the first three were decided by one run. Like, and, and so that helps with the environment and the electricity here in Omaha is when you have exciting games, right? So, LSU was the only game that wasn't really in doubt. Yes, uh, Tennessee was able to score a few runs there late. It, you know, Skeens got up to over 120 pitches. So they they take him out of the game. They bring in Guidry and the young man, uh, formerly of Barb High School, the freshman. He's been phenomenal all season. He threw a bad pitch. And, and Tennessee was able to capitalize on it. And Cooper was able to come in and kind of slow things down and then was able to close it out for him. And once again, that's a guy that's been here. Remember, we, we as much as Cooper may have had some lulls to the season, Dawson, he's been here before with Jay Johnson. So, hey, things are kind of going off. It was a quick pull of Gavin, right? The young freshman, Jay Johnson wasted no time. Go get him. Bring him out. I'm bringing in the guy that's already pitched in this ballpark, who already knows about how to deal with the uh, how the sun sets, which is a thing. There's the shadows are a thing here in Omaha at Charles Schwab Field, but they were able to get the win in advance, and now they're going to take on a Wake Forest team that was tested, uh, had a delay, as you mentioned, in their game against Stanford. They were able to pull out the win. Uh, but these are going to be the two heavyweight Titans battling it out tonight. The team that was number one for most of the season, facing off against the team that's currently the number one team in the country and the number one team in this tournament, LSU-Wake Forest. It should be a dandy of a ball game, LSU's lineup versus Wake Forest's deep pitching. Yeah, and, and uh, Wake Forest pitching staff had to be as advertised in their first game, or otherwise they'd have been in the loser's bracket because they did yeah. not swing the bats particularly well. Uh, Stanford got a great pitching outing. And, look, Stanford didn't throw Quinn Matthews, which was kind of discussed. I wasn't surprised because, again, they threw Matthews in the second game of the Super. So uh, keeping him on that schedule there, and, of course, he threw a ton of pitches. There was a lot of discussion about it. Um, but they still got good pitching from everyone they threw out there. And for Wake, look, Rhett Lauder was actually gotten to a little bit early on but then settled in and looked like himself. Uh, gave you kind of a vintage outing for what is, you know, who's a guy who's widely regarded as maybe the second or third best pitcher in the country. Um, and... and you know, that's the funny thing about teams like this. You wonder a team like Wake, they didn't get tested a ton in, in, in the early rounds. They had that close game against Bama in game one of the Supers, but then dominated yep. game two. So I think there was certainly some questions about how they'd handle a close game, but not just a close game, but a game they were trailing. Because even that Bama game, remember, they had a lead throughout. Now, Bama tried to threaten close there at the end, but it wasn't a situation where they had to come from behind. This game was different, and... 
I mean, you're down to it, down to a couple outs left there in the eighth, and they get a clutch two-run single, kind of a seeing-eye uh, two-run single up the middle to take the lead. And then they were able to slam the door. So you got a Wake team that's coming in tested. I thought we, we also questioned how Stanford would respond after kind of getting there on a miracle-type situation against mm-hmm. Texas, and they were game. They were ready to go. Uh, their offense was quiet a little bit, but again, they were facing Rhett Louder, so it's not like um, you know that's something to be ashamed of. Um, so that's going to be the first. By the way, the first game that's <clears throat> pretty intriguing between Stanford and Tennessee because you wonder who has the pitching to kind of make a run here. If Tennessee goes out today, then it's not going to matter. But if Tennessee wins that game, then we've already kind of talked about the fact that uh, they have the pitching to kind of stick around for a little bit. So uh, we'll be interested to see that. But then you get the game, yeah, like you mentioned, that we've kind of all been waiting for for a long time now. And uh, I think at certain times maybe we thought this would be a path for a championship series. Um, however. You know, the seeding, the way it worked out when you got the five and the four on, on the side of the one. Um, LSU is now in the same side of the bracket with Wake, and we get to see this matchup once, if not twice, if not three times. And we'll see who's able to come out of the loser's bracket, but it should be uh, as advertised, I would expect. And look, you know, LSU, I think we assume is going to throw Ty Floyd, but you never do know. Um, and on the other side with Wake, they've got different options. They could throw Sean Sullivan. We'll see if that's who they go with, and we can, of course, get the opinion of our guy Connor O'Neill coming up when we ask him, but... I will be interested to see who they throw because there are several different options based on their rotation because, remember, they've got pretty much four legitimate starters. They do. And, you know, some other things to kind of keep a, keep an eye on, right? We talk about the pitching, and, and we heard a lot leading up to the beginning of the College World Series, Dawson, about how this was not a home-run-friendly ballpark. Well, that wasn't the case <laughs> over the weekend, right? I mean – uh, you had Gavin Dugas get his, you know, blast a home run. You had uh, Jobert get a home run in that ball game. Tennessee hit a home run. Florida has hit home runs. Oral Roberts hit home runs. I saw a bunch of home runs get hit yesterday. So for for all the the kind of narrative of well the ball dies, the ball dies, and I don't know if it's because of uh, of the heat or whatever it may be, Dawson. But a thing that we thought was going to be a factor here in Omaha is. Well, Charles Schwab Field plays big. Balls go to die. I didn't really see that with the action that I saw over the weekend here because I saw teams have no problems hitting home runs. Well, you know, look, it's not a huge sample size, but and, and, and I'm sure someone more familiar with weather, pa- weather patterns and things like that in Omaha could tell me, you know, one way or the other. But it did seem like the ball carried better in the night games. Um, because That's true. Yesterday That's afternoon, you did not have any home runs hit. Um, in, in the first game of the day between TCU and Virginia, which was a 4-3 game in which the Horn Frogs sent Virginia home. Um, or you had one hit, home run hit, rather. That was by Virginia, though. But So only one there. Then in the Saturday game was the 3-2 game between Stanford and Wake Forest. Again, kind of low scoring there. Um, and you, didn't, you had the one homer hit by Wake, but that was it. Um, and then back to Friday, the original game, which was Oral Roberts and TCU, you had uh, three total hit there. But... I think there's been a little bit more offense. And, and overall, despite the home run ball being in play, offense has been, you know, there haven't been any huge outbursts. I think the park That's just fair. kind of playing the way it is does play a role. But, yeah, it has not been a situation. And we talked about that. It's not what it was when they first opened it, when the bats were still extremely dead and the park was a vortex. No. You but can get it, it out is, of here for sure. But, but, but it is a good sign for teams like LSU. They can hit a ton of home runs that I don't know if it's the weather or the time they're playing or whatever it might be because, once again, they'll be at night tonight, is that 
they've been able to, you know, teams have been able to get the ball out of the ballpark. So that is a distinct advantage for the Tigers moving forward if that if that remains because of their vaunted lineup. So we'll see it. LSU Wake Forest, man, it is going to be blockbuster tonight. First pitch is scheduled for 6 o'clock. Pre-game will begin at 5.30, and, of course, you can listen to it all right here on the game. We'll talk more about the LSU Tigers, more about their win over Tennessee. We'll hear from Jay Johnson. We'll hear from Paul Skeens and more. That's coming up next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel, At The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Yeah, I'm really proud of him, and, and I certainly don't take these outings for granted, but that's about the 16th one that we've seen like that, and um, remarkable. Um, I'm really proud of him for tonight because uh, he had a lot on his plate here, you know, and all great things, you know, with the, the Dick Hauser Award, but that was uh, um, took a lot of time and effort, and um, what a great honor, and I mean, he just showed tonight why he was probably the clear-cut winner for that award. Um, so we tried to get him some rest and kind of insulate him as best we could so he could um, be on track with his preparation because he does that better than anybody else. I mean, as good as the performance is, the preparation is even better. And I think what gets lost with him sometimes because the stuff is so amazing, uh, the pitch execution is tremendous. And when you put that kind of stuff with that kind of execution, you have Paul Skeens. LSU skipper Jay Johnson talking about the performance of his All-American ace who got to 200 strikeouts in the season after his performance Saturday night against the Tennessee Volunteers. Skeens was absolutely phenomenal. And he was still pitching in the 100-mile-per-hour range when he left the game. Like... He had thrown 120 pitches plus, and he was still getting 100 miles per hour on the radar gun. Absolutely phenomenal stuff. You could tell that he was ready for the moment. I mean, he struck out the side in that one inning, and he struck out the first two batters on a total of six pitches. Like, struck out swinging. It was like, Bye. Yeah, and, Bye. And that's not normal, by the way. I wanted to throw it in about the hundred, the hundred mile an hour stuff. Like, no, not. And I'm not talking college pitchers. Like, you don't see this in the big leagues. I mean, some of the numbers about the the number of times he's hit a hundred in certain innings, pretty unprecedented numbers. I mean, and we're talking like ever in baseball. I mean, it's you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to get kind of like exaggerative with that, but that's really where we're at with Paul Skeens, and so. Um, now it actually wasn't even now he's done it a little bit more a couple other times throughout the year it wasn't even as as much as it's been but uh, it's it's different for a guy to be able to throw with that type of velocity that deep into ball games we haven't seen it and it starts to make you really imagine about his translation to the next level because again it's been a, sh- a relatively short time like he was very good at Air Force but he wasn't on the level he's on now um, and certainly if he if he was it wasn't as you know he didn't have as much exposure there correct 
But I think we're talking about a guy who's going to have a chance to be a difference maker in the big leagues. Um, but he's probably still got some work he'd like to get done at LSU, and I think they're hoping that they're going to get another chance to see him. Um, and to get to him again, you're going to have to win a couple more games between now and then. Yeah, and he, his approach was just he attacked. And, and the thing is, is that he's the type of pitcher that he has multiple pitches for one thing. And the other thing is, obviously, he, he has the power to back it up. But he, he has a also – he's not scared. Like, he gets up on the bump and he believes that he is going to dominate the guy that steps in the batter box, batter's box. And that takes a whole different mentality that some guys just don't have. And Skeens was asked afterwards in the press conference on Saturday what his game plan was against Tennessee's lineup. Yeah, I mean, at different points today, I had all four pitches working. Um, and, I mean, you have to look at, at obviously, their lineup, but uh, also, you know, what's working for me. And um, went out there and, and made pitches, um, you know, kind of through what they weren't expecting at times and uh, worked pretty well. He's so – he's so just kind of just – I don't know. He's not a guy – and, and LSU has a lot of these guys on their roster that aren't exactly over the top with the personality. Dawson, right? They're, it's, it's, they, they give you good answers, but they're very straightforward. They're not a lot of beating their own chest type of stuff, right? And what was great about Saturday is that they had a reporter for Sports Illustrated for Kids there. And she asked him as one of the final questions of the press conference for the players, and she asked him, what advice would you give to kids having to face a pitcher like you? And, and this is what he had to say. I'll uh, be ready for the fastball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. That's pretty much it. That's all you can do. <laughs> and you heard Braden Jobert jumping in on that as well. Um, but I, I love that moment in the press conference because obviously it's from a kid, right? A kid, you know, reporting for Sports Illustrated for kids, asking kind of that, and he was he was taken back by it a little bit, Dawson. He was like, well, "Watch out for the fastball," and kind of kind of a nice kind of moment to end the presser there, kind of some laughter, and he kept laughing as they were coming off the the stage area and walking out. They turned around and, and they told the reporter, "That was a good question." So it was it was nice because you, you can tell that this team is focused and but they're also kind of enjoying the moment and they're they're able to do both of those things. Now it's still early in the process. They've only played one game. Game two is tonight. But I like what I see from the Tigers in they look like they're locked in, Dawson, one hundred and ten percent, but they're also not taking themselves too seriously. That could be a really nice combination for them to make a run. Yeah, and I think you mentioned kind of the, the mentality and the mindset of this team, and but overall the personality of it, and it is very, you know, very much mellowed out at the same time, you know, and you saw kind of the um, overall excitement level and the kind of – we've seen the fiery moments at times, right? We saw it against yeah. Kentucky in the regular season where there was a couple of run-ins. Um, you saw it uh, with, you know, the game against Tennessee. You saw a couple of emotions, and I'm not sure – of course, you were at the game not watching on the broadcast, but there were a couple of kind of testy moments there. But, 
they never let it take over, right? They don't let it get to that next level where it's then impacting them on the field. They use it as you know, kind of positive motivation. And Dylan Cruz, his mindset and kind of his mentality things, he reminds me a little bit of Mike Trout. Um, and actually, you know, sometimes Mike Trout, of course, gets a little criticized for the lack of kind of eccentricism or, or however you want to describe it. But um, I think that kind of ability, baseball is a game that you kind of have to be like that at times, right? You just can't play uh, with your hair on fire all the time. And there's moments to, to kind of show that. But um, I think they kind of follow after a guy like Dylan Cruz, right? And, and he's someone who uh, keeps the mentality where it needs to be because at the end of the day, you know, when you play a game like baseball that can humble you in a hurry, you kind of have to have that. And we saw, of course, that was kind of the talk about Tennessee and this year's team was different. And I thought I thought they battled. But again, I think LSU just had a little bit too much for them. Um, but at the same time, they're not done in this tournament. Overall, though, I think, yeah, tonight I'm just excited to see this is, as a college baseball fan in general, like this is a uh, this is a battle here between a couple of teams that are going to be, you know, really tough to beat in this tournament, but they're going to be they're going to beat each other, one or the other. So we'll we'll see who gets the better of it. It's it's going to be a battle tonight, and uh, look, as as great as as dominant as Skeens was, and. Well, we'll talk about a little bit later in today's show about Joe Bear having a very good night at the dish and as well as Gavin Dugas um, stepping up in a big way. You know, defensively, Dawson, uh, Trey Morgan's glove work at first base uh, is is wildly underrated and was big in, in that game against Tennessee. And, and Pearson had some great catches as well. So defensively, they were sharp as well. Um, against Tennessee, and even some plays that Tennessee was able to beat out, still good plays, good effort. Uh, so LSU's defense was on point as well. So that was something that a lot of us didn't talk all that much about, but definitely was a, a factor against the Volunteers. We'll see if it's going to be a factor again tonight against Wake Forest. Once again, we'll have that game for you, LSU versus Wake Forest. Pre-game scheduled to begin at 5.30, first pitch at 6 o'clock, and you'll be able to listen to it right here on the game. we got to take a timeout, but when we return, we'll shift gears a little bit. We'll talk U.S. Open, and we'll unveil the poll question of the day. That's all coming up next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Just as we all expected, Wyndham Clark won the U.S. Open over the weekend at the Los Angeles Country Club. <laughs> that's not what we expected. Of course, that's a little early morning sarcasm here on RP3 and Company as we're broadcasting live from Omaha for the College World Series. Clark did what he had to do to win this, ended up shooting 10 under for the tournament. The enormous high scores that we thought we were going to have, they died down over the weekend as the course got a little tight, especially on Saturday and Sunday. He actually shot an even par 70 to hold on to win. Clark had never finished better than 75th in a major ever. So he's a first-time major champion. So with Clark winning it, 
What does that mean? Well, that means Roy McIlroy did not end his drought. He came close, came very close, finishes in second place at the U.S. Open, but his drought continues. He played much better golf, thought he was going to make a move on Sunday. It just never materialized for him, which has been something that's happened at major championships for Rory where he's in contention, he has a chance, and just is unable to put together a run of like three or four holes or even five holes where he seizes control of the tournament. Scotty Scheffler, the world number one, he finished in third place in this tournament. And Ricky Fowler, who led the first round, the second round, and the third round and was looking for that elusive first major championship after having his career just kind of crater, if we're going to be perfectly blunt about it. He struggled on Sunday, just didn't have it from start. You could just tell four or five holes in Dawson. You could tell that Ricky wasn't going to have it, and unfortunately – he falls all the way down to fifth place at the U.S. Open. Great bounce back for him, right, in, in a major championship after having his career be down for so long, but disappointing as well because we are all kind of rooting for him to kind of get over the hump. Uh, a very likable guy on tour, the best golfer on tour not to have won a major. So give me your thoughts that don't include the fact that the country club mishandled getting out tickets and – had the crowds be more like a John Deere Classic than a U.S. Open. Give me your thoughts besides that on yeah, everything else yeah, that can, happened we, in L.A. We can get to that at some point here. But, no, um, I thought starting with Ricky again, and, and Ricky, you know, all, all bias included here. I'm a big Ricky Fowler guy, and uh, it was clear he didn't have it. I thought the momentum on 18 on Saturday carried mm -hmm. over, um, which, by the way, another thing about the way this U.S. Open was handled um, – Wyndham Clark and Ricky Fowler were essentially playing in the dark on the last couple of holes, and they talked about it afterwards. And there was no reason to start. And when the tee times came out for Saturday, I sat there, and of course there's the time change, so you're kind of thinking about it. But it was a 5.30 central time tee time for Ricky Fowler and Wyndham Clark. Um, so, you know, local time, I think that was, what, 2.30? But it, either way, you sat there, or, or 5.30 Eastern. No, I think it was 6.30 Eastern. So... 3.30 local time, tea time, and, and it runs him into the very end. But anyway, you know, they said, and, and Wyndham basically said, you know, his last putt, he, he thought his bogey on 17 and Ricky's bogey on 18 were largely due to the fact that they couldn't see the ball. Uh, and, and they were going, they were putting based on feel because they couldn't see the lines. Um, Ricky actually almost makes an incredible 30-footer for birdie on that 18th hole, but misses it, runs past the hole by four or five feet, and then he lips out on the par putt coming back. And I thought that kind of, you know, again, I don't know how much that plays into it, but I felt like that bad momentum, he would have had the solo lead. Instead, he's in a tie for the lead with Wyndham Clark. Um, and overall, he just struggled. He didn't have it. Um, and it was plain and simple. And I guess in some ways, it's better to feel like you didn't have it at all than to feel really close and feel like it's one shot here or there. And that's what it was for Rory McIlroy. Now, I felt like I was, and I don't know if, you know, if you got this same vibe. I felt like I was watching the Open Championship at St. Andrews last year, where he just, could, he just couldn't make yep. a charge. But he was hitting the ball well, and that's the weird thing. He's hitting the ball pretty well off the tee. He's hitting the ball to the green. He's making decent approaches. He has a couple of looks inside 15 feet, a couple more inside 20, 25 feet, and he just never made a putt. It was and really about the putting. And this is the, the thing, putting. yeah, and, and, and the putting, and like you said, this, we saw the same thing last year at the Open Championship, and we've seen it a couple other times during this drought where he's been in contention because if you look at the resume, he's top three, top five, top ten in a lot of these majors that he's been playing in. And you could argue 
he has the best skill set of any golfer in the world. But for whatever reason, he's gotten to this thing where, as I mentioned before, he hits the ball well. He just can't string together three, four, five holes where he seizes control of a major championship on Sunday. For whatever reason, that's now we're starting to see this. We've seen this more than a few times with him. And you go, okay, okay. So, because, you, you know, yesterday I was expecting with Ricky struggling and really Wyndham didn't, you know, leave anybody in his dust, right? He shot even par, Dawson. So I was like, it's right there. Ricky's struggling. Scotty's too far back to kind of make a charge. Wyndham is just playing, you know, even par golf here. It was right on a platter for Rory McRoy. And he just didn't seize, he just didn't seize control of it. He didn't play bad. It's just, he didn't do enough to seize control of a major championship. And, but he did get close. I mean, yeah, and, we're talking one stroke off. And let's not act like Wyndham Clark didn't play outstanding golf. I thought the conditions, by the way, towards the end there in the afternoon wave on Sunday, with how firm the greens got and how much the mm-hmm. wind picked up, yep. it was the hardest it played all weekend. So I think uh, they both shot even, he and Rory, but I thought it was more indicative of a 4-5 under par round earlier in the week. Um, and but that's the thing, and and you won't, you know, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't feel like nerves. It doesn't feel like choking for Rory because of how well he actually struck the ball. Now, maybe for whatever reason, he feels more of that on the putting green because he just couldn't hit a putt. But um, he hit a couple of really good shots, and he talked about it afterwards about how you know he felt pretty good. He just never quite got it going. And um, you know, I think look, that's going to continue to kind of be the narrative now around Rory until he's able to figure it out again. But Wyndham Clark, I, I thought, responded in a couple of ways. The the eighth hole there. He kicks off the green and goes into that kind of waste area oh. that we talked about that Ricky was stuck in the other day. Now, Ricky made birdie from that spot. Um, Wyndham then misses the ball, essentially, goes underneath it, um, and yeah. it looked like it was about to go into real disaster. And he's able to hit a great shot afterwards, but still ends up off the backside of the green, but then gets up and down with just some wizardry. His short game was just unbelievable on Sunday. Uh, even when he missed a couple of greens, he was able to get up and down almost every single time, and that... That up and down for bogey, saving bogey there and not making double or triple because, again, once he's in that little waist area and he misses the first shot, I mean, literally swings through the ball essentially, uh, maybe maybe moved like a couple of inches. You know, that was a chance for a guy who's in the first big moment a major championship in his career. That was a chance for it all to fall apart and unravel, and it didn't. And that's impressive for a guy who hasn't been there before. Now, hey, maybe the lack of uh, atmosphere at LACC made him more comfortable, made it feel like more of a regular oh. tournament there. But uh, oh, I thought he responded in a big way in that moment and then carried it up and didn't let that kind of linger and then got right back on track. And, again, he shoots even par despite that bogey and what could have been a disaster right there. Look, he played well throughout the entire tournament. He deserves to be the champion. As for your point about Los Angeles Country Club, I don't want to ever see – a major championship or a big time tournament ever held at that facility ever again. Well, I got bad news for you. US Open in 2039 is going back to LACC. It is atrocious. There's a couple of things we 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 could focus in on the layout and how it wasn't all that daunting and how they didn't make it to the US Open standard. That could be one gripe. Absolutely. My my bigger thing is what we found out as the over the course of the weekend Dawson is how they attacked attendance here uh it's one of the lowest attended uh, u.s opens on record that it's a private club 
So the majority of the tickets that were sold, the course bought itself to give to its members. And then so many of those members we hear didn't even bother to come out for it. And then they didn't offer general admission tickets to guess what? The general public, which would love to be able to come out to watch the U.S. Open. Everything from the course design, from not making it U.S. Open tough, to how they've managed to not involve the fans and not create an atmosphere worthy of a major championship. I think they dropped the ball and they bundled this from jump throughout the entire weekend. Yeah, I was not a fan of, of the layout um, as it went on. Look, and, and now that's fine. Like, I don't think I have to love every golf course. They don't ask me again. But um, I didn't love the layout and the challenge that it presented. Um, I thought there was at times, too, and look, I, you, you don't fault him because, again, he played the shot knowing what the fairway was like. But Wyndham Clark essentially just absolutely sliced his tee shot on 18. It was a bad shot. He was, you know, he kind of immediately came out of it and was feeling bad about it on, on, on the very last hole of the major championship. And he needs par to win. And he still ends up on the right side of the fairway because that fairway is about 50 yards wide. And, again, that's, that's fine. It's still a difficult hole. You still have about a 200-yard iron shot in, and, and he had to hit another good shot, and he did. He hit a great shot and ended up winning the championship because of it. But, like, I, I felt like, man, this guy hit one of the, maybe probably the worst drive he hit all weekend on the last hole when he needs par, and he got away with it. And I don't think that a U.S. Open should really allow for those types of things, you know, and, and – that's, again, a microcosm of the whole course in general, but I just wasn't a huge fan. But I could have gotten over that, right, um, with the atmosphere being what it was. But, yeah, no. And, and then they did this thing at the end and, uh, where they tried to let all the fans run up into the middle of the fairway. And, it first of all, it created a long delay and distraction for Ricky and, and Wyndham, which, of course, Ricky at that point wasn't in it. But for Wyndham Clark to have to kind of sit there and deal with all these fans that are trying to gather around, which they were trying to do to improve the atmosphere on the last hole. And apparently that was planned, but I thought it was strange the way they tried to do it. Well, because you didn't see it the whole week. Right. You know, I'm saying, so all of a sudden, it, it's alarming because and it's jarring. It doesn't have the right. Uh, it doesn't have the right effect. It doesn't have the desired effect that you were wanting because you mishandled how to have the fans be part of the event to begin with. Then you're, you know, yeah, you planned it, but it's. It was just so foreign. It was just so foreign. So funky. Yeah, and 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 so overall. You know, look, I still enjoyed the tournament. Um, I, I thought the course did get more challenging as it went, and, and, you know, I don't completely fault them for that because I do think it's a lot more difficult than people think it is to just kind of envision how professional golfers are going to attack a course and who's going to be able to put down some low numbers. Those, you know, those numbers that now we shot Tommy Fleetwood, I think we should mention, shot 63 on Sunday, which is one of the lowest rounds on a Sunday in a major championship ever. He had a five-footer for 62, which... Would have been, and, and, and as it was discussed, that would have been a lot different from the 62s that Shoffley and Fowler shot on Thursday mm -hmm. because of the way the course was playing on Sunday. Um, now, unfortunately for Tommy, he was, I think, too over par to begin the day, so it didn't end up mattering as far as making a run at the title. Um, but he attacked that course on Sunday and did some things that we haven't seen done in a while. But, yeah, overall, um, it was okay. I, I'd, I'd like to see certainly... You know, now look, they'll have uh, 16 years to figure it out before the next U.S. Open, so I'm hoping they'll figure <laughs> things out by then. Um, but we the hope. next time it heads to LACC. But uh, overall, slightly underwhelming. I'm hoping for uh, better things in the final major of the year at the Open Championship next month. We hope so. We hope so. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll unveil the poll question of the day and wrap up our number one. You're listening to RP3 and Company right here on The Game. 
This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, Oof. And I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day. We asked this. It was a busy sports weekend, Mr. RP3. What was the most surprising thing from it? Was it the Reds sweeping the Astros? Yeah, that wasn't great. Was it Wyndham <laughs> Clark winning the, winning the U.S. Open? Uh, of course, a name that we weren't necessarily expecting. Was it Bradley Beal getting traded to the Suns, which we haven't had time to dive into, but we will, of course, be talking about throughout the week? Uh, or was it other? Was it something else? Early results, 24% say the Reds sweeping the Astros. 35% have Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open. 18% have Brad Beal going to the Suns, and 23% have other. Early comments, Ralph says, Clark for sure, from almost quitting golf to U.S. Open champ, Cinderella boy was looking back, and at, in 2018, he was tied for 58th at the Louisiana Open at even par. Beat a pretty nice leaderboard and a heartwarming story about his mom. Uh, I certainly agree there. It was pretty impressive what Wyndham did. Steve says uh, the ACC pitching looks subpar in the first round. UVA is out. Wake Forest barely beat Stanford. The only SEC loss was by another SEC school. As advertised, it just means more. Hashtag go Tigers. Um, Wake Forest giving up two runs to Stanford's an interesting thing to say that the pitching struggle. But anyway, Hart says the most surprising thing is that the Jello shot record still stands after three days. That'll get taken care of by morning. However, if the Tigers get the W tonight, I would certainly agree with Hart about the Jello shot record being in serious danger. Um, that's the poll question of the day. Keep leaving your comments and voting. Uh, we will share them on Twitter and Facebook throughout the show. Uh, RP3, that's going to do it for hour number one. What we have uh, up next in hour two. Hour number two, we're going to dive into the Houston Astros' struggles. We're going to preview tonight's LSU-Wake Forest game with Jeff Plarimo of Tiger Rag Radio, and we'll take your phone calls. Hotline is open, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. You're listening to this special road tripping edition of RP3 and Company live from Omaha right here on The Game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, me, oh, my crawfish pie. Welcome back to our number two of this special road tripping edition of RP3 and Company as we're broadcasting from Omaha, Nebraska, home of the College World Series. We're a stone's throw away from the site of Old Rosenblatt Stadium where the College World Series was held for decades. 
our number one in the books. We took on recapping the LSU-Tennessee game for you. Heard from some of the LSU players and coaches, and we'll share more of that here coming up. We also have a poll question of the day. What was the biggest surprise of the weekend? Was it Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open? I don't know that much about Wyndham Clark, but it sounded like someone that wanted to set up my retirement for me. That's what I first thought of when I started hearing his name over the weekend at the U.S. Open. But he's a big surprise, right? He wins the U.S. Open. The Bradley Beal trade to the Phoenix Suns caught some folks off guard. We started hearing rumblings about that, that he had a no-trade clause and he would have to sign off if we went to Phoenix or Miami. The Milwaukee Bucks were also interested. But Bradley Beal goes to Phoenix. Uh, we'll talk more about this later in the week. But by the way, Bradley Beal's missed a lot of time as well. <laughs> so, so... Uh, getting paired up with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. And I still don't quite understand, once you have DeAndre Aiden, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, and Devin Booker's contracts, those four guys, they're over the luxury tax threshold. And they don't have anyone else under contract. They have other players that they're going to make offers to. But it's going to make it a little difficult to build up a team and I do believe that's the same problem they had this last year when they traded away all the assets to get Kevin Durant. So we'll see. We'll see what Phoenix can do and how they can build a roster when they're going to be limited with how many guys they can actually add to the roster. Was that the big surprise? Bradley Beal trade? Was it Wyndham Clark? Or was it the Houston Astros getting swept by the Cincinnati Reds? Whew. I don't know about you, but... I didn't have on my bingo card the Astros, Yankees, and Dodgers all sitting here at this time of the year being 39 and 33 and not leading their divisions. So Astros aren't the only ones on – are not the only ones on the struggle bus right now, but the Strohs, they keep yeah, – we'll dive into that this hour as well. Of course, we'll take your phone calls. Hotline's open. You know we'd love to hear from you. Just be nice to Dawson. You can get on the air. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. But I want to talk more about LSU. They'll be taking on Wake Forest tonight in a winner's bracket game. Pre-game scheduled for 5.30. First pitch set for 6 o'clock from Charles Schwab Field. And as dominant as Paul Skeens was, Saturday night against the Volunteers, and he was phenomenal. Once again, got to 200 strikeouts on the season. He eclipses David Price for second all-time. The SEC record books, the only man above him is Ben McDonald, who has 202. The pitching, in particular, Skeens, was dominant. And they got some timely hits as well. But I want to talk about the defense because not only did, did Trey Morgan do some niftiness with the glove work at first base in that game, which is going to make him such a valuable asset when he goes to the big leagues. Also, Josh Pearson made some sensational catches, and Jay Johnson talked about those catches that Josh made in the outfield, especially with the sun setting the way it did with the shadows. Yeah, spectacular. Um, you know, I, tonight was very reminiscent of we started this season at Texas A&M. Um, league play started league play at Texas A&M it was a bigger field the wind was blowing in uh we played him because I just think he gives us professional at bats he's a pretty good defensive outfielder and 
that paid off and um you know he's obviously earned a spot in there with how he's performed throughout the postseason but left field here is a really tough place to play at the six o'clock game there's son that sits right you know right over there and we actually had to warn him about it um we're here in 21 we hit a double over the left fielder's head and and then we misplayed a ball in left field in the first inning so um it's really tough but he did a nice job and and mark wanaka I've said this before, is the best positioner of outfielders in the planet. And he did, he earned his money tonight with that. They hit a couple right at Dylan and um, right at Josh. And, you know, people were kind of having fun at Josh's expense, Dawson, with having the sunglasses up on the ball cap and not putting them on. And we didn't hear from him in the press conference, but we heard later out of the locker room and then yesterday the reasoning why, and he said if he would have actually slid his shades on, it would have made it nearly impossible for him to be able to see the ball. So that's why he had him propped up on his ball cap because of the way the sun sets here at Charles Schwab Field and the way the shadows are. If he would have put on his glasses, he would have he would not have been able to see. So that gives us a little bit of an explanation there, D'Lo, about why he was uh, rocking the suns on top of the ball cap while uh, there was sunlight. Yeah, and it's my favorite part of the show where I'll compare my amateur experiences as an athlete to guys <laughs> who are my, much better than I was. But it's it's my favorite part of the uh, show. When, when I used to play third base at our, one of the fields that we played at often in the area, there was a the way the stadium was built. There was kind of an upper deck type level, then a gap, and then the lower deck level. And essentially, what took place is when the sun was setting at five thirty six o'clock. There was this window where the sun was between those two levels, and it was brutal. And the problem is that if you went to field a ground ball and you were looking down, you had kind of this glare action. But if you were looking up for a fly ball, the sun wasn't in play because it was underneath. So you almost I actually found it better to not have the sunglasses on because when I was looking up for anything that was hitting the air, you didn't need them, and you'd kind of have trouble tracking it in that kind of twilight area if you had the sunglasses on. But if you went down... To field a ground ball in the wrong area, you could just kind of catch that sun glare right at the wrong time, and it could kind of cause some problems. So I don't think that's necessarily the same exact situation, but it, got, it I think it kind of plays into what he's talking about there. Sometimes when the sunglasses are on but it's getting darker, it's actually tougher to see the ball with the sunglasses on because you're then kind of matching the shade of the sky with the shade of what your lens color is. Uh, so that's kind of your you know as, as technical as I'll get into it there, but I do understand the perspective of someone preferring not to wear the sunglasses, even if it looks like they're still trying to shield their eyes from the sun. That was magnificent. I wasn't expecting you to compare something that happened to you in your glorious high school career to, exactly. to Josh Pearson and what he was able to do for LSU with some spectacular catches in the College World Series. But you pulled it off, my friend, and... Well, sometimes just it's necessary, problem. you know what I mean? Just problem. And we're basically, yeah, so basically I am Josh Pearson is what we got out of that. Yes, Yes, that's exactly what we got out of that. Now, defensively, they came up with some nice plays. They played game defensively, but they also came up with good hits, and just not at the top of the order. Once again, five of the ten hits in Saturday's ball game for the Tigers came from the seven, eight, nine hitters. And leading the way there, of course, was Braden Jobert, who had himself a monster monster game he gets a double he gets an rbi triple and he gets a home run as well goes three for four on the night and Braden was asked what was he seeing when he stepped in that batter's box there at charles schwab field against tennessee's pitching i was trying to get the ball up um 
you know, stay at the bottom of the zone. That was something that uh, I needed to improve from from last weekend, and um, you know, that was the focus in BP and and all the training going into the uh, you know this week. So, um, you know, just sticking to my plan, um, you know, following what our coaches tell us, and uh, yeah, it's it worked out positive for me. It's such a huge advantage for LSU because when we think about their lineup, we think. All right, we think Dylan Cruz, and then we think Tommy Tanks, and we think Trey Morgan, and may- maybe even we get to thinking Cade Beloso. But the guys on the bottom part of that lineup came up huge, and that allows you to continue to put pressure on the opposition, Dawson, when you don't have a weak spot in your lineup. When you got guys that are going three for four at the bottom of the lineup, there, there, there's no breath. You know, there's no time to take a breath if you're the opposition pitching wise, because there's always someone there that's going to be dangerous that can lift the ball right out of the ballpark. Yeah, I think that's a big difference this time of year too. I and you know some of the teams that are better offensively in this tournament um, are going to put more pressure on the opposing pitching staffs, and again, that's going to get even more important as the pitching staffs get a little bit worn out throughout the tournament. Now. Tonight we'll see. You know, it's going to be a top. It's going to be some frontline guys. Now, for LSU, once again, we expect it to be Ty Floyd. We will see. That's never going to be an official announcement until game time, as we know. But um, it, it might not play as big a role tonight. But it might really, really start to matter. Mm-hmm. I think when you have the the length and the depth of that order, and even tonight, look, that's the issue. The other thing is when you are facing a top line guy, like they will, the ability to have you, you might not you might only get a couple run scoring opportunities is is the point here in this game and the ability for a team to not have it matter what part of the order's up when they get an opportunity that's big in a game like this um, because you might again there might be two innings tonight where you have you know let's say bases loaded or two runners runners on second and third or something and you need a big hit um, and sometimes if you've got a you know a, a spot in the order seven eight nine hitters that are unproductive then you might waste that opportunity just because of the way the lineup falls uh, to, to be in any situation, no matter who's up, whether it's the leadoff hitter or the number seven hitter, uh, and feel confident that you've got a good chance to get a base hit doesn't mean you're going to every time. Uh, as Foot reminds us so often, baseball's a game of failure, but it means you got a good chance at any time, and you're not going to feel like, man, if only we had the top of the order up in this opportunity. And, you know, afterwards as well, the question was, was asked to Gavin Dugas, who obviously had the home run in this ball game, and, and Joe Bear, you know, about the fact that they were able to come in here and kind of break the seal, so to speak, on the College World Series. And, you know, most of them had never been in here, had never experienced this moment. You know, what does it do for them to be able to come right out, have success, defense, offense, pitching, get that win and kind of break the seal on that College World Series experience? Uh, no, it was awesome. You know, I've been uh, I've been waiting a long couple of days uh, since we've been in the hotel. I know everybody else has. Uh, but it, w- it was awesome just to see the environment and take it all in in that first pitch of the game. Um, it's everything you could expect and more. I mean, Coach told us whenever we um, won the Super Regional that it's going to be everything you expect times four, uh, and he was right about it, and I'd say times ten. Um, but I'm, it was awesome just to enjoy that first game, and we're ready for the next one. Yeah, um, <clears throat> like I said earlier, um, you know, we were just focused on slowing ourselves down because it's such a big environment and such a big stage. But um, – it was unbelievable. It was everything I thought it would be. And, um, yeah, it was just – it was awesome. Okay, let's go to Leah here. 
It was awesome. That that'd be a good way of describing it because electric crowd. It was the nightcap, and obviously the LSU fans were in full force. And and look, Dawson, for them to they get the first win. Now they take on an immense challenge in Wake Forest. But these are going to be two Titans. They're going to duke it out at Charles Schwab Field once again. That game, you can listen to it live right here on the game. Pre-game will begin at 5.30. First pitch set for 6 o'clock. LSU Wake Forest live from Omaha. we got to take a break. When we return, we're going to shift gears. We're going to remain on the diamond, but we're going to head down to Houston. D'Lo went to go see the Houston Astros play, and he saw them lose. And then they lost again. And then they went ahead and, for good measure, went ahead and got swept. We'll talk about that next right here. On the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Of Houston Astros. They're still above 500. They are still in contention to catching the Texas Rangers. But getting swept by the Cincinnati Reds, an exciting young team that, let's be honest, the majority of their roster was in AAA a year ago. So they're you're a young team trying to figure out how to win. Getting swept by them is not ideal. It's also not the end of the world, but they're below expectations, I think, and you're starting to see the fan base be frustrated. You look at them, Dawson, and they're behind the pace that they typically are during this great run of theirs. Um, last year at this time, they were 45 and 27. The year before, they were 44 and 28. Don't count the COVID year. Go back the year prior, 48 and 24. Then they 47 and 25, 48 and 35, 34 rather. So they're off the pace by around six to seven games, right? They're usually during this run, they're usually six or seven more wins than they have right now. So that's part of it. Part of it is also injuries, right? Alvarez being out, Altuve missed time. Alex Bregman had been struggling before Sunday's game where former teammate Brian McCann gave him a call and said, hey, this is what you're doing, you need to fix it. And he went out there and had a good game. But the Astros still found a way to lose. Like It's not one thing with the Strohs from my perspective. It's, yes, the injuries are playing a role in this, Dawson, but it's members of the bullpen performing poorly it's defensive miscues unexplicably kicking the ball around it's base running gaps that we've seen in the last few weeks it's guys that should be not slumped that are slumping it's a combination 
of a multitude of things that's happening here that have the Strohs 39 and 33. Uh, the same record, by the way, as the Yankees and the Dodgers, two other teams that were thought to that were going to thought to be running away from with their divisions, and no one is. Yeah, I think the injuries are are your main factor here. I think a fully healthy Astros team is at around 40, 45 wins here, in my opinion. Um, now, that's been the case all year, and they've played better at times. Now, the Reds have now won eight in a row, and I think um, you know this good young story about this this fun Reds team, like this, this might be something real. And the guy, you know, just kind of going back. So I was, I was in the house minute made park on Friday night. Um, then also got to see about half a Sunday's game, had to get on the road, wasn't able to stay for the whole game. But, um, I will say this, the atmosphere was great. The crowd, it was packed. Um, I've been to, you know, a lot of Astros regular season games over the years. And this was about as, you know, close to sold out. I'm not sure if it was quite sold out, but pretty packed both days, both Friday and Sunday. Of course, Sunday being father's day, there was a, you know, uh, a good number of people in the house again. And it was a good atmosphere to a ball game. J.P. France was fantastic on Friday night, um, but he actually got out dueled. And, you know, look, the Reds threw a guy, and Abbott was fantastic, who's now 3-0 on the year and still hasn't given up a run. So uh, that was in play here. The Astros didn't score a single run until the bottom of the ninth inning when they got one. Um, but Andrew Abbott kind of showed me something. He, so he's now got 17 and two-thirds innings pitch and hasn't given up a run, the 24-year-old left-hander. Um, and the Reds have some guys, and they played well. But, yeah, you mentioned it. Now, Saturday's game got away from them a little bit late. They end up losing it 10-3. to Belak was okay. But, again, Brandon Belak's not supposed to be relied on as a starter. Um, and then on Sunday, they throw Ronald Blanco. So think about that. In the weekend series against the Reds, I understand they got swept, and that's you know not necessarily what you wanted to see. Um, but they threw three guys that I don't think any of us thought were going to be starting meaningful games this season in J.P. France, Brandon Belak, and Ronald Blanco. Um, so I think that can't be kind of lost in this. Now, they've all been much better than we thought they'd be, all three of those guys. And, and again, J.P. was really good once again on Friday, and Blanco was okay on Sunday. He wasn't bad. He ended up giving up the home run ball late there that kind of hurt him. But I think overall, yeah, you mentioned it, and I think that's a good way to put it. There's not one area that they're really, really horrible right now. They're just not great in any you know particular category. The offense doesn't get timely hits. feels like one night, if Tucker has it, nobody else does. The next night, Bregman tries to carry it. They don't have an offensive rhythm to them. Um, now, the interesting thing is they got a couple of clutch hits. They tie the game up in the bottom of the ninth last night, Chaz McCormick with a single, and it feels like they're about oh. to win the game. And then they leave the bases loaded, and they head to extras, and the Reds' offense explodes. And once again, Ryan Presley has not been very good in the last couple of weeks, so something to keep an eye on there. But just can't quite find a way to win a game right now, and, and that goes that way, and they've lost four in a row, and now they got to face Max Scherzer, who has not been himself of late, but you always feel like he's about to figure it out. So it could mean bad news, but we'll see. Maybe they'll show up to uh, show up ready to play at Minute Maid tonight. They get the Mets to come to town, uh, and look, the, the Mets have had their own struggles. And and look, the the injuries are a, a big reason of why they've been able to struggle so much. But they do other things as well and it's just you keep waiting for them to turn the corner right because we've seen them and they're look we, this is well documented they're notoriously slow starters to the season and but we're kind of past the the early part of the season now I mean we're barreling towards the all-star break so they're still an above 500 ball club and 
it's not time to quote unquote panic. There's a lot of angry Astro fans out there. I've, I saw them on social media throughout the weekend, and I just wanted to say, uh, you know, here's a digital hug for you because I feel like you need one. But if they can get healthy, but it also this is why it's so hard, Dawson, to repeat in Major League Baseball. It 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 just is. It, it's different, and people go. Well, you know, they've been to six straight ALCSs. That's correct. But, you know, last year they were coming off losing the World Series. So they had a chip on their shoulder. They had focus. They had a drive. And it's just so hard to stay on top of the mountain because things happen. Injuries happen. And then, you know, you'll go on these little bit slumps. And and it's human nature to relax a little bit, right? It just is. And that's why when we see teams put together runs or we've seen individuals – like Tiger Woods in golf or like Michael Jordan with the Bulls or Kobe for a short stretch, when they take over and they're constantly on the top, we now know what that takes. That takes an unreal amount of dedication where you sacrifice everything in your life, your family, your friends, your sanity, because you are obsessed with being the best and staying on top. And it seems like maybe the Stroh's a little bit kind of relaxed a little bit, which is to kind of be expected. And it's so much harder in baseball than it is in the other sports. It just is. It's just so much harder. Yeah, and again, I mean, that's that could be part of it. Um, but I still think this team's played pretty well for large stretches of this season already, and they have a lot more to go. So, you know, maybe, look, individual cases, does a guy like Alex Bregman, as he is locked in as he was a year ago, I'm not sure you can answer that. Um, for I mean, look, right now Kyle Tucker's carrying the offense, so I don't know if you could say that about him either. And then a lot of these other guys um, that are playing significantly right now weren't a huge part of those runs. And so I don't Correct. know if that all is a, is a factor for them. Yiner Diaz has given them some good at-bats right now. And I think, by the way, moving forward, some adjustments, adjustments that can be made, I think you need to see him more often. And um, I think you need to see a couple of more guys get some more chances here. Chaz is starting to come around. Um, at times, but overall, I yeah, I, and that is a factor, and, and that mo- staying motivated at that level is, is next to impossible, and, and we're going to see that coming down the stretch here, I'm sure, um, but I don't know if that's the struggle right now for this group, and, and I think maybe it has a little bit more to do with some of the surrounding factors, and again, hey, they took two from the Nationals in the, mid- in the middle of the week, lost the finale of that one, and then got beat by a really hot Reds team, but let's see how they respond against the Mets. But because uh, coming up after that, you've got a pretty tough road trip that includes, uh, I believe, the Rangers and the Dodgers. So you're going to find out a lot about this team in the next two weeks. And they still have time because baseball is a long season. We've seen teams turn it around after the All-Star break. So we'll see if the Strohs can start kind of turning things around a little bit because they've been a bit of a lull here the last couple of weeks. we got to take a timeout. When we return... We'll talk LSU baseball with Jeff Plarimo from Tiger Rag Radio. That'll be next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette. 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. All 
Oh, welcome back to this road trip edition of RP3 and Company as we're broadcasting live from Omaha, Nebraska. That's right. We're just literally a stone's throw away from the old Rosenblatt Stadium, which held the College World Series for all those years. Of course, their new home, and it's been that way for quite a while, is Charles Schwab Field. Don't forget tonight, LSU, Wake Forest going to be meeting clash of the titans the team that was the number one ranked team throughout majority of the season the lsu tigers versus the team that ended the season ranked number one and enters the college world series as the number one ranked team in the land the wake forest demon deacons those two teams will square off pregame will begin at 5 30 and then of course chris blair and company will be on the call at six o'clock and you can listen to it Live right here on the game. 5.30 pregame. First pitch set for 6 o'clock. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. What's the thing that surprised you the most over the weekend? Was it the Bradley Beal trade from the Wizards to the Phoenix Suns? Was it Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open? He had never finished better than 75th in a major championship. He's able to pull through, shoots even par on Sunday to hold off Roy McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler, and others to win his first career major. Or was it the Houston Astros, who we just spoke about, getting swept at the hands of the Cincinnati Reds? Woo! Astros are a bit on the struggle bus right now, suffer their first sweep of the year as they now they get ready gear up for the New York Metropolitans to come into town. And uh, I can assure you for the next few days, I will be a Houston Astros fan because I root openly against, against the New York Mets. Well, we're glad to hear that. Um, and I did want to give you an update on the results so far. We got 35% oh. of, say, the Reds are sweep sweeping the Astros. So that's actually taking the lead now. 32% say Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open. 13%. Say Bradley Beal traded to the Suns and 20% going with the always fan favorite other option. Love the fan favorite other option. What about some comments? Do we have any new comments, D'Lo? We'll get back to that. We will get back to that. Yeah, let me get you some comments. Sorry about that. Um, so... Ralph says the least surprising thing is, uh, yeah, no, least surprising thing is the other seven teams combined in the Jello Shot Challenge, downing them quicker <laughs> than a skeins fastball and on pace to shatter the all-time record. Gomaha is being painted purple and gold. Go Tigers! Tan said the weekend surprise is actually getting to rest on Father's Day without having to deal with kiddo drama. Happy belated Father's Day to the dads! And uh, Houdet Forever just simply shared a gif of uh, Jello shots in someone's fridge, so that I think explains it. There we go. More than 10,000 Jello shots have been consumed at Rocco's. By the way, a portion of that goes to charity is how they're doing it this year. So they donate to local food banks and other charities. So good time for that. Good, you know, LSU fans, as we know, are, how do I say this? They have an ability, a skill set, if you will, to step up when it comes to any type of drinking challenge. So they're they're balling out. The record, by the way, was 
is held by Ole Miss. Over 20,000 Jello shots consumed by the Ole Miss fans last year when they made their run and won the whole thing. LSU is already halfway there, and they barely got out of the first weekend. So I expect that record to be annihilated. We now head out to the game hotline to welcome on the man who co-hosts Tiger Rag Radio. He's also the sports and news director for the Louisiana Radio Network. Jeff Palermo joins us for a few minutes right here. Jeff, good morning to you, my friend. How are you? Oh, we're doing well. How about yourself, Raymond? I am enjoying lovely Omaha, Nebraska. And, yes, I did get a steak dinner last night from a local steakhouse, and it was delightful, if you were wondering. Well, that's good. I was wondering, making sure you're getting fed (laughs) and, you know, you're hydrating up there and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's not nearly as hot uh, up here as it is back home, of course. So making sure people back home stay hydrated and stay safe during this heat wave that we're experiencing. But let's uh, let's focus in on the Tigers. They take care of business against Tennessee. Skeens was dominant. They got some timely hits, got some home run balls as well. And defensively, they had some good glove work. What's the thing that stood out most to you, Jeff, from what we saw from the Tigers against the Volunteers Saturday night here in Omaha? Well, you know LSU's going to score some runs, six runs, and, yeah, they're not going to get double digits like they've done 30 times this year. It's You're, you're facing some of the – I mean, Tennessee came into the contest with the second-best team ERA in the country, so you're not going to score a ton of runs. But getting six runs is a – is is outstanding. You knew Paul Skeens would dominate, and he did exactly that. Riley Cooper continues to be absolutely outstanding, uh, pitching his best baseball, maybe of his college baseball career when LSU needed the most. I ask, if you ask me what, what stood out the most, uh, you got to love the defense. I mean, um, Josh Pearson's uh, terrific catch out in the left field with the sun in his eyes. Not an easy play there. That was big. Uh, Trey Morgan's uh, stretch there at first base. Uh, I just think LSU doing uh, really putting it just all together. I mean, Hayden Travinsky threw out a runner trying to steal. They did a lot of good things uh, defensively in that game, and and that's that's really good to see. They do a lot of really good things defensively, and they got the pitching that they needed, got the timely hits as well, and. They also were able to get some home run balls, and we we talked about it, and Dawson and I talked about this earlier, Jeff, is, you know, this field, this ballpark is known for kind of having balls die, and I don't know if it was the time of the day or because of the heat or whatever it may be up here, but uh, a lot of teams were able to get balls out of the ballpark, including LSU and Tennessee in that nightcap. Uh, What do you make of that, and do you think that's going to play a factor moving forward for the rest of the tournament? Well, I think the... I still think it's a pitcher's park, but it's it has changed where it's it's swung a little bit more towards the hitter's advantage here in, in recent years, and I, I just think that's because the baseball is different now. Um, there's just more offense in the game. You know, Florida hit a bunch of home runs last night, and now they've set a school record for most home runs in the season. LSU's hit you know the third most home runs. Uh, this season, you look at Wake Forest. Uh, they got some big thumpers in their lineup, uh, including one guy that's uh, you know hit 31 home runs this year. That being uh, Brock Wilkin. Um, Nick Kurtz has hit 24 home runs for Wake Forest. So I think this, I think Charles Schwab Field is a little bit more relenting now when it comes to the home run ball. Uh, it's not where a lot of balls just die at the warning track as as they once did. 
you know, going back to the 2013 College World Series when a total of three home runs were hit for the entire series. I think those days are over with. So the home run ball is in play. And uh, when you're going up against a, a team like Wake Forest, who leads the nation in uh, team ERA at 2.82, you better hit a couple home run balls here tonight because it's going to be very difficult to just string hits together against them. This is a staff that's allowing opposing opposing batting at opposing teams to hit just 204 against them. So LSU's got to hope they can get a runner on base and somebody come up and swat the ball out of the ballpark for a, you know a two three run inning. Well, Jeff, when it comes to what LSU's going to do on the mound, uh, Jay's made it clear he's not going to be making early announcements for the rest of the year. But we all assume Ty Floyd's going to go tonight. Do you think that's the case, or does Jay have something up his sleeve? No, I think it's going to be Ty Floyd. I mean, there's no reason to change what you've been doing pretty much all season long. You go with Paul Skeens in the first game, and then you go with Ty Floyd game two. Uh, He has done nothing to relinquish the number two role on this starting staff. He's been really good. I think what you would like to see, though, out of Ty that you haven't been able to get from him here lately is a little bit more length. Can you get him? Can he get? Can he give you six innings here tonight? Um, and then I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see what they decide to do if uh, once Floyd is done, who they bring in. Obviously, if they have the lead, I think you go in, you go with Thatcher Hurd, and you try to do everything you can to win this game, so you don't then have to win three games in three days in order to get to the championship round of the College World Series. Um, so if uh, they're leading, I think you go with Thatcher Hurd. If not, uh, you know, I think you'll see guys like Nate Ackenhausen uh, and some other guys. And he, you could bring back a Riley Cooper. You obviously can bring back Gavin Guidry. I think there's a couple of other guys that you can go out and, and, and get out of the pen. But you, I think you really just need a little bit more here from Ty Floyd as far as length. Uh, you just haven't been able – I think he's only pitched like three times this season where he's given you six or more innings. I, I think you'll take six innings tonight if you can get that out of Ty Floyd. Well, the funny thing is we're kind of speaking on both sides of it because we just talked about how the offense is more than it used to be at Charles Schwab Field. But we do know it is an overall pitcher's park. So do you think Ty Floyd, a guy especially who likes to kind of be a fly ball pitcher at times – can that help him? Can Wake kind of take a couple of big swings, but maybe they end up dying out on the warning track? And could that play to the advantage of Ty Floyd tonight? Oh, I, I think so. I think that you know, tight, the home run ball has been a little bit of a um, has been a bit of an issue here for Ty this season. Uh, you go back even in the Super Regional Series, right? Uh, a leadoff home run from uh, Kentucky's leadoff hitter in the first inning. Um, he, he's been one to give up runs early in the ball game too that's been the other thing that's kind of hampered ty floyd uh you know giving up the one or two runs in the first inning i don't know if this is a a wake forest team that you really want to be behind in because they can just kind of throw a lot of really good arms at you as the game goes along so uh kind of doing doing what lsu did uh on saturday night get that early lead uh, get your pitcher feeling comfortable. Hopefully some secondary pitches are working for Ty Floyd like they were for Paul Skeens on Saturday night. That will certainly make it easier for him as well. We're talking with Jeff Palermo of Tiger Rag Radio. He's also the news and sports director for the Louisiana Radio Network. He joins us here on RP3 and Company as we're broadcasting live from Omaha for the College World Series. All right, Jeff, you kind of laid it out a little bit. Obviously, they can go – 
tonight, they'll go with Ty, and then you say they may be able to turn over to Thatcher, and they could use Ackenhausen as well. So if they use Thatcher tonight in relief, and regardless if they have to do a quick turnaround and play an elimination game or not, does that kind of set the table for us to finally see Coleman back out there pitching yeah. for the first time since the month of May? Yeah, I think yeah, I think uh, that's where you go is uh, Javen Coleman. I think after that, um, realistically, you probably cannot get, you probably can't use Skeens again till Thursday if you really needed him. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think you're going to see uh, Javen Coleman out there here um, before <laughs> here soon, uh, and um, he, he's really been your kind of your. You know, depending on depending on what you need from Thatcher Hurd, whether you need him coming out of the bullpen giving you four or five innings, uh, but if if you burn Thatcher Hurd here tonight, um, I think Javen Coleman's probably your starter either on um, either uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, one one of those days, depending on what happens here today. And just a refresher before we let you go, Jeff, if they lose tonight, the Tigers would have to turn around and play on Tuesday, correct? Yeah, they would have to play Tuesday, and then the tough thing is then having to win three games in three days in order to get to the championship series, which would be very difficult for this team considering just once you get past the first you know, six guys that you really count on this team, uh, it, gets, it gets really difficult at, at that point uh, for them. Uh, so, man, this, this game is, is it's just so huge. I, I really feel, guys, that you know the winner of this game uh, ends up winning the College World Series. No disrespect to Florida, but I, I think these are the two best teams, and there are seven teams still left. I think these are the two best teams in college baseball, and the winner just has such a huge advantage then to get to the championship series where they only have to win one more game in order to get to the championship round, while the loser has to win three games. So, obviously, uh, it's, it's, it's why they call it the marble game. It is, man, there is, there is so much on the line. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's uh, to me, like I say, I think it's the two best teams still left here in college baseball. Jeff, appreciate your time. As always, thank you so much for it, brother. And uh, we'll talk to you next week, my friend. All right, sounds good, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is the epitome of a high roller, constantly making large bets. But by doing that, the minimum bet is a dollar for a win, a dollar for a place, a dollar for a show. So it's essentially a $3 bet. That netted me a cool $6.70. What? Okay, so he's not a risk taker. He's your best bet for sports talk. 19. Hit me. 20. Hit me. 21. Hit me. 22. Go! Now, back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Whole question of the day is this. What was the most surprising thing from the sports weekend? Was it the Reds sweeping the Houston Astros? Right now, that's the favorite, 41% of you saying that was the most surprising thing. Was it Wyndham Clark 
winning the U.S. Open. 32% of you say Wyndham Clark getting it done. 11% say Bradley Beal being traded to the Phoenix Suns, and 16% are going with the fan favorite of other. Um, the, some interesting comments. We've had a lot of interaction throughout the day, but uh, B-Rad says all the home runs hitting that abomination of a stadium at the College World Series, yet the scores were still just normal baseball scores. Great opening weekend. Go Tigers. Um, so overall, uh, John Paul Cajun Daddy, by the way, said the Breakers make it to the playoffs, but that was not really a surprise. But I do agree with Hart. Ole Miss, Jello shot record, still up there after three days, but it will fall. Um, and then Cajuns fan said, TCU paying the Piper in the ninth inning against Oral Roberts after winning five straight games in the regionals. So, of course, the Piper always making an appearance, even in Omaha. You can't escape him. You can't escape him, brother. You can't escape him. Two hours of the special edition in the books. Tell the folks how we're going to kick off hour number three, D'Lo. We're going to talk with Connor O'Neill, and he'll give us uh, some perspective on Wake Forest. Get some, um, you know, we've already heard the LSU side. We'll hear the Wake Forest side. That's coming up right here in hour three, right here on the game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company as we broadcast live from Omaha, Nebraska, home of the College World Series. We're just a stone's throw away from old Rosenblatt Stadium right here in Omaha, which used to be the home for the College World Series for decades. It's now being played downtown at Charles Schwab Field, a magnificent ballpark in its own right. LSU, of course, took care of business in its first game, beating the Tennessee Volunteers, their old SEC rival. But up next is a game tonight. Wake Forest, Demon Deacons versus the LSU Tigers. Of course, you can listen to that game live right here on the game. Pre-game begins at 5.30. First pitch scheduled for 6 o'clock. LSU was the number one ranked team in the country for most of the season. Wake Forest ended the season ranked as the number one ranked team, and they're the number one seed in this tournament. And these two teams will battle it out tonight at Charles Schwab Field. Winner's going to have a distinct advantage. We heard Jeff Palermo talk about that previous hour because they won't have to play three games in three days they'll get a day off who will win and what type of team is wake force we don't know that much about them we know they have some great pitching we know they are in the college world series for the first time since 1955 but what else can we know about them in this matchup tonight well helping us with that is the man who covers the wake force demon deacons for deacons illustrated Connor O'Neill joins us now. Connor, good morning. Thank you for making the time, brother. How are you? I'm good. I'm. Uh, I've got a little cigar mouth going, but that'll that'll dissipate by the time game starts, and uh, <laughs> we're we're all good here in Omaha. Yes, yes, we are. Yes, we are. So, tell me a little bit about how this team kind of took college baseball by storm a little bit here. Uh, not only rising to the number one ranked team in the country, but 
going through and easily getting through its own regional. And then after getting pushed a little bit by Alabama in the first game of their Super Regional, crushing the Crimson Tide in Game 2. And here they are playing in the winner's bracket game tonight. It's kind of a two-year process for Wake. Um, they were 20 and 27 in 2021. Uh, just had a terrible year all around. They had a lot of fourth-year guys that weren't even planning on being in college for that fourth year. Uh, they were talented, and then the COVID draft happened where it went from 40 to five rounds. The 21 team, the chemistry was terrible. Uh, they underachieved based on the talent on that team. They were one of two teams that didn't even make the ACC tournament that year. And at the end of that season, uh, I remember they, they swept Pitt. It was kind of the cherry on top of an awful year. They swept Pitt to end the season, and I asked Tom Walter what had to happen for them to avoid this kind of season playing out again. And he was very upfront and honest about the program needing a culture change. And they have revamped the culture. Uh, it, it was a lot more prevalent of a storyline last year, but the chemistry on the team has only gotten stronger. And you know, it's don't get me wrong, it's a talented team. Uh, they're going to have two first-round picks next month with Rhett Lauder and Brock Wilkin. They're probably going to have two first-round picks next year with Nick Kurtz and Josh Hartle. But when you when you add in chemistry, uh, when when you get really talented players that also really like each other and and go to go to bat for each other, um, kind of pun intended. There, it's. It's a good mix. And uh, the other part of the two-year process is after that 21 season, their pitching coach resigned, and they were able to hire Corey Mascara from Maryland. And he has been, you know, I don't follow the rest of the country across college baseball as closely as others do, but I would imagine Corey Mascara has got to be one of the best pitching coaches in the country. And I think the team ERA of... 2.82 or whatever it's at now uh, would, would certainly speak to that. I'm glad you brought up the pitching because that's where I want to go next, Connor. You know, this team has three legitimate aces, and one of the guys wasn't even supposed to be that for them this year, but seized an opportunity due to an injury. Just tell us just how good, how great is this Wake Forest pitching staff? Yeah, the way I've been saying it, like, Wake's offensive numbers and talent is elite compared to other teams in college baseball this year, right? They're top five in a bunch of different categories. I think they're up there in homers. They're up there in runs scored. Um, they, they're really selective to play. They're elite compared to other teams across college baseball this year. Wake's pitching and defensive numbers, you've got to look to previous seasons to find their equals. Um, it, there's just there's kind of nobody in their ballpark when it comes to what their strikeout to walk ratio has been. Um, their team strikeouts, I think they're within 60 or 70 of the single season record set by Mississippi State in 2021 when they won the national championship. Uh, they they just they don't give up free passes. Uh, they execute in the zone a lot. That's something we've heard uh, a lot of different coaches say. It's not just you know, Tom Walter and the pitchers telling us why they're good. It's listening to Maryland's coach, uh, who's coming into the SEC, by the way, next year, Rob Vaughn, 
listening to him talk about how good Wake's staff is, and he had a premier lineup in college baseball this year, and when they met in, in the regional, I think that was the 21-6 to game. Um, so it's, it's a staff that uh, they, they go, you know, Rhett Louder is the ace you would know about. Josh Hartle pitches tonight. He's a sophomore lefty who he's been a little shakier than, than he has been for most of the year in the last uh, month or so. So that, that's something to keep an eye on. But a little shaky for him means three out of his last four starts, he's given up four runs. And that's a season high. So it, it, it's it's a situation where like you know Wake's Wake's less than average is still better than a lot of other teams in the country. Well, Connor, you mentioned Josh Hartle is expected to get the go tonight. Um, is is that something that um, has been expected for a while? Because I know they kind of pitch backwards in the regional. So what has kind of been the approach with how they line those guys up? Um, obviously, they went with Louder in, in Game 1, so are they going to be back on kind of their regular schedule, so to speak? Yeah, it's going to be Hartle tonight. Um, that that was kind of always the plan going in. They have, they basically, they've gotten to this point in the season. It hasn't been like this all year, but they've gotten to this point in the season knowing that Rhett Louder and Josh Hartle will start, and they feel extremely confident that those guys are going to get at least five innings, maybe six, and if they're really if their stuff really works, they're going to go seven. Uh, Then you have versatility with Seth Keener and Sean Sullivan, both of whom pitched on either side of the lightning delay in game one against Stanford. Those guys can both start games. Those guys can be stretched out a little bit. Those guys can show up in the, you know, sixth or seventh inning in a really tight spot. Uh, They both, they kind of have unique aspects to them. Seth Keener works extremely fast. Uh, I think the pitch count sometimes is like at 17 when he's starting his delivery. And Sean Sullivan is a lefty who was the Saturday starter for most of the season. And he dealt with some inflammation toward the end of the year. Miss, uh, I think he went three weeks between starts. So they've been working him back. They've been stretching him out a little bit more. And with him throwing, I think he only threw 25 pitches uh, the, other, the other day against Stanford. He's be available tonight if they need him. Um, it's just kind of one of those they've they've got some flexibility, some versatility with those two guys, and they're going to use that to their advantage. Well, offensively, Connor, you already kind of mentioned some of the big names and Brock Wilkins in the middle of that lineup. Nick Kurtz has been great all year. Even a guy like Bennett Lee, someone I watched play a lot at Tulane before he transferred over to Wake. What makes this offense go? And then is there any concern about the size of the ballpark? I know they didn't have their best game against Stanford. Uh, is there any concern about that kind of impacting them throughout the rest of this tournament? Or is it as simple as they faced a good arm and just didn't have their best night? I think they faced a good arm, and I think they were really tight. Um, I think Joey Joey Dixon had good stuff. Uh, I don't want to take anything away from him, but I also think one of the major factors was Wake was, Wake was pretty tight. Um, they were making some good contact that, that was going at players. Uh, but it, it was more, I mean, it, I hate going into hypotheticals, but if you want to get into hypotheticals, I think without the lightning delay, Wake is playing the early game today. Uh, and, and they're staring at a pretty steep climb up the hill. And you guys are probably talking to somebody from California for this spot. But, um, it's a 
it's a situation where they use the delay to their advantage, and it's not like they're going to make any excuses of why they why they won that game. But they needed that break to kind of loosen up, uh, and and so the hope becomes, well, let's not get into a situation where we have three hits through six innings again, and one of them's an infield single, and the other one's just a grounder that found a hole, and the other one's a solo homer. Like let's actually get some get some good bats to balls. Uh, the the thing to keep an eye on is every time Wake has had a subpar offensive game, the next game they've they've come out on fire. Uh, they were like there was a three one loss to Notre Dame and they came out and won the next game twenty to nothing. Uh, they got shut out in the series opener hit three nothing, and the other two games of that series they outscored them forty to four. So it's an offense that and it, it's not down for long, and I think that's another thing that speaks to the chemistry that I mentioned at the, at the top of this. We're wrapping up our conversation with Connor O'Neill of Deacons Illustrated. He joins us here on the special road trip edition of RP3 and Company from Omaha. Connor, I'll get you out of here with this. Wake's pitching has been very good, and it's uh, one of the best pitching staffs in the country. But have they faced, in your opinion, a lineup as vaunted as the LSU Tigers and what they're going to put out there in tonight's ball game? No, there's there's not a question. I mean, there's there's only one Dylan Cruz in the country, and there's only one Tommy White. And we can't, uh, I didn't realize until going doing some doing some research. Uh, I watched some LSU last week, but it was just kind of on in the background. I didn't realize they hit a one-two in the lineup. So <laughs> jumping into the deep end right off the bat with those two guys. Um, that's no, that's uh, that's not something anybody else in the ACC has or does. Um, it's funny, actually. the The only lineup in the ACC that I thought was that I wanted to see kind of challenge Wake was Virginia, and Wake and Virginia didn't play this season. Uh, they didn't run into each other in the ACC tournament, and you know, there's ten ACC series, and it just happened to be that they, those two didn't match up. So. That was a that was one that I was kind of hoping to see that I never saw, um, but yeah, this is this is going to be a test for Wake's pitching like no other test has been this year. What do you think happens tonight? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it feels like Connor. It it does kind of feel like a coin flip game because I think it's going to be a high scoring game. Um, even though both are going to be throwing good pitchers because both lineups can hit, and you made some valid points there. But, I mean, could it come down to who's the cleanest defensive team tonight? It definitely could. Um, Absolutely. I I think also um, five of the six games that have been played out here in Omaha have been one-run games. I know that the the games that have happened in the last 72 hours don't have any bearing on what happens here, but... If you just go by that trend, like we're in for, you know, this is this is kind of this feels like the marquee game of college baseball all season. Um, these are the two; these are the top two teams in the country. You said it in the intro. Uh, it felt like it was LSU Wake one two for the longest time, and then uh, Wake was just kind of waiting for LSU to drop a series, and they finally did, and that's when Wake got to become number one, and. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the one, and I, I I would be kind of disappointed if we got like an eleven to two game that was over by the fifth inning. Uh, I, I think we'll get something around the neighborhood of five four seven six, 
something like that, and uh, just really high-level baseball. Connor, appreciate your time, as always, man. Can't wait to meet you in person tonight at the ballpark. Enjoy the rest of your day. I know you're going to be busy doing the writing and doing more phone interviews. Appreciate you making the time out for us early this morning, brother. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, everyone is apparently part of the game family. Brother, 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 brother. Seriously, how many brothers does Ray have? Good morning to you, brother. Back to Ray and all of his brothers right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Full question of the day. We asked you what the most surprising thing was from a busy weekend across all of sports. Was it the Cincinnati Reds sweeping the Houston Astros at Minute Maid Park? That's what 42% of you say to lead the vote. Was it the Wyndham Clark U.S. Open title? Um, Wyndham winning his first major. 32% of you said it was that. Bradley Beal got traded to the Suns in the midst of all that, and 11% of you said that was the answer, and 15% went with other um, you know, for me, it's it's Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open. I think when you when you look at the phrasing of the question, we went with surprising, and I think that was a surprise to me overall. Um, I thought Wyndham was fantastic on Sunday, and a guy who hasn't been in that moment in a major championship um, sure, certainly looked like he had and was kind of game, had a couple of chances to melt down but never did. The Reds are hot, and the Astros aren't playing their best, so I wasn't entirely shocked by that result. Um, and the Phoenix Suns, look, the, you know, ownership changes or whatever else, it seems like they have a different approach. I'm personally not a fan of the moves they're making, starting with firing Money Williams, then moving on from Chris Paul, now moving Bradley Beal in. It's no doubt a talented roster. I just don't know if the pieces are going to fit together, and I'm interested to see what that team's going to look like next year. Well, for me, look, I, I was a little surprised that the Astros got swept by the Reds, even though the Reds have been playing well because the Astros hadn't been swept. Um, I was, you know, for me, surprised by Wyndham Clark because he sounds like someone who should be a financial advisor. Um, for, so for him to win the United States Open was the big surprise for me. D'Lo, I, I will have to interject something here. You know, uh, we'll be making the return trip tomorrow. You'll be hosting the show. You'll have me on RP3 and Company as we make our way from Omaha. Now, uh, I made a deal with my daughter that uh, I would going to be gone and that I would bring her back something. Usually that's what happens when I go out of town. I usually bring back the little one, Hattie, some sort of memento from the road. My dad used to do it all the time when I was a kid. He'd come back from being offshore going out of the country, and he'd bring us back a little token or something like that. I always loved that. So I do that with my daughter. But this is the deal, D'Lo. If I come back in someone's room is not tidy, is not clean, should I prevent her from having the gift that I got for her on the road trip? I mean, she has a day to get it together, a full day tomorrow, to get that room together. Isn't that what I should be doing here? Um, okay, you're asking for parental advice from the 24-year-old who isn't married, doesn't have kids, so I'll give you my best shot. Um, uh you know, I think it's a... The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Now, you can, you can hold the item, 
Ooh. and create it as a bargaining tactic. You there know, we go. I mean, look, the item, but obviously you're going to have the item, so... I will have the item, but it will be in my possession, yeah. Kilo. I will not be. So So I guess I think that's what I'm going to have to do. Right. I'm going to have to make sure to let her know that when I return home to Louisiana, that I expect that room of hers to be tip-top shape, tidy, actually clean, organized, swiffered, swept, and uh, everything like that. So when I come back, there won't be any issue, and she can get the gift that I was able to pick up for her on this road trip. So I think that's what I'm going to do. Thank you. See, just because I'm a parent doesn't mean I have all the answers. Yeah, no, and maybe you, you can go with the dust check with the finger and really kind of get strict oh. with it. That depends on how, how strict you want to oh. be there. That's oh. pretty oh. harsh, and hey. I think, you know. Hey, hey, I got, I got a story about that. I got okay. a story about that. So I used to, uh, I'd have chores, and my mom would give me chores. So I'd like, I'd have to clean the bathrooms, and I'd have to uh, dust and polish the furniture. And when we lived in Illinois, we actually had wood floors, so I would have to sweep in and polish the floors as well. So I had a, a litany of different chores, and I got paid to do so. And I had chores at an early age. Well, your boy tried to be, um, I, I, I tried to cheat, D-Lo. So I was in high school, and I really didn't want to have to kind of pick up all the knickknacks off some of the furniture. So I just feather dusted around them and then polished around them, thinking that my mom would not pick up said items off of her dresser or off of her Hoosier cabinet to see if I actually had done the actual job. Well, Dawson, uh, my mother at the time worked midnight. She worked overnights at, at Columbia House. And she got off early that day mm. for whatever reason and came home and checked my work and found out that I, in fact, did not pick up the knickknacks and, in fact, did not polish underneath them and promptly woke me up. And it yeah. was a school night, by the way. <laughs> it woke me up in the middle of the morning. It was like 3 o'clock or something like that crazy. And uh, made sure that I uh, did my chores the proper way. And uh, let me tell you, D'Lo, uh, I never tried to cut corners again when it came to my chores after that. I learned my lesson promptly. Yeah. No, I had a friend um, who had a similar story, but it was with cutting the grass and kind of cut the corners there. And the deal was... If he didn't cut the grass up to the standard, then he had to recut the entire lawn, not just the parts he'd already, you know, had yes. missed before. He had to recut everything and uh, was yep. watched closely. So, yeah, no, I mean, look. Some, yeah, yeah, you learn. Some things yeah, yeah. are stricter than others. You, you only do that once. You only do that once. We got to take a time out. Hey, keep voting on that poll question of the day. You can leave your comments, both salty or not salty. Um I know some of y'all are already kind of being salty about Wake Forest, and uh, you can't wait to see LSU crush their their, their pitching. Uh, you know, it, look, it's going to be a, a battle tonight. I, I expect this to be a great game. But keep those votes coming on the poll question. we got to take a timeout. When we return here on this special edition of RP3 and Company, we're going to talk a little New Orleans Saints. They wrapped up minicamp last week. We'll hear from some of the players, Chris Olave, Jamal Williams, and Jawan Johnson, some of those playmakers on offense. We'll share that with you coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station.
Oh, most definitely. I mean, he can do everything already, too. I feel like I do everything, too. So once I get the opportunities, I'm great. That's why I'm grateful to be here, too, is just they give the running backs opportunities to go out there, no matter who it is, if it's Alvin, if it's me, anybody, they give them a chance to go out there, run choices, give opportunities to get one-on-ones, and they go out there and just make plays. So, But being here with uh, AK is just great. It really is so awesome because it's just so funny that we, we got drafted together and all that and just our journey and now seventh year here now we on the same team so it's just i just think of like how god works in different ways so i'm just blessed to be here grateful to be with a great dude like ak and really just want to go out there and make noise with him man that's new new orleans saints running back jamal williams talking about how he and alvin Kamara complement one another and dawson i don't think we've talked enough about that move in particular and it seems to be kind of lost in the shuffle when we think about this team for the upcoming season is just how big of a deal it is that they got a guy that in many ways has is a great compliment. He's a downhill runner, but Williams can also catch the ball out of the backfield. It feels like an upgrade over what they had the last couple years with Mark Ingram back there. And this is a guy who's a humble, he's a great character, but especially with Kamara possibly facing a suspension, this is was a huge deal, a huge contract for the New Orleans Saints to be able to execute to bring in a guy who led the NFL last year in rushing touchdowns. Yeah, and you say huge contract, and I think you mean in importance, but the funny thing is yes. it wasn't a huge contract in value, uh, in, in monetary value, which was big for the Saints as well. So I think Jamal's interesting because he's done, a, he's done it in different ways depending on the offense he's been in. And you go back and, and look at what he was in, in Green Bay. Um, there was also, you know, he was always second fiddle to Aaron Jones there. Even when he was brought to Detroit, the idea was for him to be behind DeAndre Swift. Things changed yep. with Swift having some injuries. And I think we've seen at different stages in his career him be a very effective pass catcher out of the backfield at times. Um, but then last year we saw him kind of become this like three-down dependable workhorse back and now he the design wasn't always for him to be that and I don't think the design will be that in New Orleans but early in the season Kamara is I mean look almost definitely going to be suspended and you got a rookie in Kendra Miller who how far along is he going to be at that point I don't know so you might have to lean on Jamal Williams for a stretch of time and I think that's why he's here so you know ideally eventually yeah he's going to be a compliment to Alvin Kamara and then you know the rookie Miller is going to have a role as well but Jamal Williams will kind of be in that hybrid type of situation but I think early on at least you can expect him to be the guy, um, depending on how quickly you know Miller comes along and, and how long the suspension is. Who knows how long it'll be or what it is, but I think for at least a stretch of a month or so, Jamal Williams is going to be getting you know the majority of the carries and potentially a lot of the work out of the backfield as well. And the great thing about him is, is this as well, Wilson, is he doesn't have a lot of wear and tear on him. You understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, he carried a lot last year for the Lions, but early in his career, when he was one of the guys, a platoon back for the Packers, he doesn't have a lot of wear and tear, so to speak. So, a guy that still has some fresh legs, so to speak. So, that's a, another great thing for the Saints as well. And and Jamal, uh, as they wrapped up minicamp last week down there in Metairie, he was asked, you know, hey, anytime you make a switch, anytime you you, you go to a new team, it's all about not only incorporating yourself with the team, but also having to learn the playbook. And he talked a little bit about, you know, how quickly he's getting adjusted to the type of offensive plays the Saints want to run. Oh, it's easy peasy, lemon squeezy, honestly. It's just, uh, how can I say? <laughs> 
uh, it reminds me of Detroit's offense because they, you know, they came from here. So it's literally just the same thing. It's just a couple of words here and there changed. So, but it's good though. We forget that that many of the Saints coaches coached Jamal in Detroit, right? So that's another huge advantage here. Not only is Jamal a versatile guy that can catch the ball out of the backfield, he's a tough downhill runner as well. He doesn't have a lot of tread on the tires. Oh, and by the way, he's not having to learn an entirely new playbook, D'Lo, because they run a lot of the same plays last year in Detroit that they're going to be running this year in New Orleans. Right, and I, I think you made a good distinction there about the kind of the tread on the tires because we talked about you know running backs and the way that their value and their age is also extremely correlated, and you know mm -hmm. you think differently. Look at what Minnesota just did, moving on from a guy who you know for all intents and purposes has a lot left in the tank in Dalvin Cook, but <laughs> one of the top three running backs in the NFL, and the Vikings are like, yeah, that's fine. Right, and, and that's just kind of how it goes with running backs in today's day and age. But to your point there, Alvin Kamara. And Jamal Williams maybe came out at the same time there in the 2017 draft and are the same age, but yet Kamara has carried the ball more than 200 times more than Jamal Williams yeah. has. And in the NFL, that's about a season, right? You know, So he's got a full extra year worth of carries uh, on him. And, and then you, you factor in the, you know, the amount of catches that Kamara's had. He's got over 430, and Jamal only has 160. So uh, the overall number of touches in the wear and tear is actually um, you know, potentially significantly higher for Alvin Kamara than it is for Jamal Williams, despite them being the same age. Um, and that's something that you can't overlook specifically at the running back position. Correct. Now, let's go over to some of the pass catchers because uh, they, they have a wealth of them. And I want to start off talking about Jawan Johnson. He had a breakout year last year lining up a tight end, the converted wide receiver to tight end. And even though they brought in Foster Moreau, the obviously New Orleans native and former LSU team captain to help bolster that tight end group. Jawan is still a great big red zone target. We saw it last year. He was top 10 in touchdown receptions and receiving yards for tight ends in the NFL. We forget about that. And he's continued to get better and better. And he was asked, as minicamp wrapped up last week, could he repeat what he was able to do last year during his breakout season in the NFL? I mean, I feel like there's so much more I, I, I could give and so much more that I, I have. Uh, I feel like a lot of people harp on like the season I've had, but there's so much more that could be done. And, and I feel like a large part of it is because, you know, we didn't have a postseason. And so, you know, a, a lot of people want to focus on the individual thing when, you know, you, you go in the all season and, and all, everything is like, oh, I did my job. But at the end of the day, you feel so lonely because you're watching other people you know, in postseason, you know, fulfilling what, you know, everybody wants. And so, um, yes, I had a – to me, I, it was good, um, but it's, there's so much better that I could do. I love hearing that mentality. I love hearing that, yeah, everyone's talking about what I did last year, but you know what, I can be better. I can do better. I'm working at being better. And Juwan was asked, you know, does he feel like he can become the best – at his position, that he can be one of the elite tight ends in the National Football League. Yeah, I mean, that's why. I mean, that's what, at least that's why I play. I mean, some other people they just go out there, go through the motions, but um, that's never been me. Even when I wasn't the guy, um, I always felt like I had a lot of confidence in my ability, had a lot of confidence in the people around me, and um, I'm finally getting my chance to show it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I really feel I can be um, the best tight end out there. Obviously, there's guys like Travis Kelsey, George Kittle. Um, 
TJ. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there who are really, really good. And um, yeah, I just have to you know keep working and, and doing my thing and, and, and helping this team win games because once the team win games, you know, the, the individual accolades come together. So, yeah. I love everything that he had to say. And I, I, I've always been kind of impressed by Jawan. He's definitely matured. He has worked his way into this position, Dawson. And, you know, once again, converted wide receiver into a tight end, had to learn a new position, has dealt with multiple quarterbacks. I know we all have just penciled in Derek Carr to Foster Morrow over and over and over again. But Jawan Johnson's going to play a big role in this offense, especially when the team gets down into the red zone. Yeah, and, and it's – you know, look, they, they they brought in some guys at tight end, and we'll see what the rotation there looks like. I think we we all kind of have an idea that Taysom is not that and, and whatever no, he's going to be no. listed at. Um, but Foster Moreau will have a chance to contribute. We'll see. Um, but I think Juwan Johnson specifically as that, you know, receiving option because, again, I think the converted receiver storyline, which maybe it's mentioned a little too often, but it, it, it matters here. And he's a guy who's familiar with the route tree, and he's familiar there with it is. the ability to get open and, and find space. And I think Derek Carr, look, Derek Carr also likes the tight end, right? Now, he happened to have a great one in for much of his time in Oakland slash Vegas with Darren Waller. But, you know, even coming into the league, Derek Carr has uh, kind of had a reliance at times on that position, especially when he's got a guy he has a good rapport with. So um, I think as long as those two hit it off on the right foot, which we don't have any indication that would mean otherwise, then he could be a he could be an impact maker for the Saints this year. Absolutely. And speaking of impact makers, Chris Olave, what what a great rookie season he had. He was able to kind of carry the load after Mike Thomas got banged up and had to miss the remainder of the season. Jarvis Landry was banged up and missed most of the season as well. And uh, Traquan Smith does what Traquan does: not catch the ball and instead run block. So Olave the first round pick really flourished and you know another one of those great Ohio State guys developing in the pros for the New Orleans Saints they have a great tradition of that well they've also have depended on a former great Ohio State player and a guy that used to play for the Saints briefly Ted Ginn Jr. has been working with the wide receivers trying to pass down some knowledge in Alave the man who was in the running for Rookie of the Year a season ago talked about what's it been like having Ted Ginn helping him out. Uh, it's huge. Uh, I looked up to him uh, when I was younger, watching him on TV. Um, you know, he came way before me, so uh, it, was, it was always a standard to, to be behind him. Uh, he set the standard high, and I always wanted to uh, uh, have a play style like him. And just to have him uh, be out there and, and, and help us and coach us uh, definitely helped me. You know, uh, obviously there's there's the relationship there with the Saints and Ohio State, and obviously Ted played for the, the Saints briefly. And I, I think we look at Ted Ginn Jr., D'Lo, uh, sometimes in a negative way because we remember him being overdrafted. I do believe he was in the number six overall pick that year when the Dolphins reached on him. And people were like, whoa, you're, you're getting a return guy and a wide receiver there. You're kind of reaching for him a little bit. I think that followed Ted Ginn for a while in his career, but he ended up being a pretty good pro, lasted in the league a very long time because he could do a multiple things. Uh, anytime you can bring a guy like that in that was able to stick in the league for a decade, around a decade, and was able to do so because he could do multiple different things in arounds, 
catch the ball, play special teams. That, that's always a huge, a huge advantage and a huge asset for any team. Yeah, I was the ninth overall pick. You were close, man. You were close. I really thought you had it right. Oh, there just on just just flip morning. just flip it just flip it. It would have been perfect. Uh, but fifty seven hundred yards receiving in his career, over six thousand kick return yards, and over yeah. twenty five hundred punt return yards. Um, you mentioned it there. A guy who found his now maybe was you know looking back on it was the ninth pick in the draft high. Uh, I don't know. I think he ended up getting a productive player. Certainly early on, maybe the returns weren't there as a receiver, but. Um, yeah, a guy who did it in a variety of ways, found what worked for him in the league and stuck with it. Yep. Um, and so now, you know, a guy in Chris Olave who has a chance to continue to develop, I think the great thing about what Olave did as a rookie is that I don't think he were anywhere near his ceiling. And again, if you get a guy like Michael Thomas to go alongside him, across from him uh, in some of these formations, that's going to make things even easier, you would think, uh, as long as Mike is back to what we think he can be. He's also going to have a chance to grow and learn with Rashid Shahid. Those guys are going to, you know, they certainly have different entrances into the NFL, one being undrafted and one being a first-round pick, but yet they're now kind of on similar paths, right, a chance for both of them to take the next step. So I think if those two guys do, that's going to, again, help Derek Carr. And, uh, look, he's got some options this year, and hopefully all three of the guys that we heard from today, Jamal Williams, Juwan Johnson, and Chris Olave, are going to be helping that offense get to where they need to be here in year two under Dennis Allen. And – and look, you look at it, and, and obviously injuries are always a role, but you look at the Saints' offensive playmakers, Dawson. Michael Thomas, Chris Olave, Rashid Shahid, right? And then you have a bunch of other guys fighting to be the number four. We're really high on A.T. Perry, the rookie, but let's just say those three wideouts. You have Juwan Johnson, Foster Moreau at tight end, Alvin Kamara, Jamal Williams at running back, and then the wild card is Taysom Hill. So that's eight guys right there. Eight guys that could be huge pieces in this offense. Uh, but for me, I'm, I have no question about what Derek Carr can do at quarterback. I have no question about what he can do with the, these pieces, if they can stay healthy and the type of numbers they can put up offensively. My big question, Mark, is can the offensive line be healthy enough to be able to allow Derek Carr to be able to go through his reads and carve up defenses. That's my big question, and we're, we're going to find more about that as training camp and then preseason rolls around in the months ahead. we got to take a timeout. Whew. we got to take one. I'm sorry. The fun is about to come to an end here in Omaha as we're broadcasting live from the home of the College World Series. We'll finalize that poll question of the day, and we'll get you set up for Kevin Foot and Footnotes. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, poll question of the day. Final results. What was the most surprising thing from the sports weekend? 40% of you say the Reds sweeping the Astros came from behind and took the win over Wyndham Clark winning the U.S. Open. 
which got 35% of the vote. 9% said Bradley Beal traded to the Suns, and 16% went with other. Um, We thank everybody for voting and participating in the poll question of the day. Um, We had a good show today, live from Omaha. We did have... We we did have a, a grand show today. I want to thank our guests for joining us. We got the LSU perspective from uh, Jeff Palermo, who gave us his thoughts about what the Tigers can do the rest of the way in Omaha. And what about our guy Connor stepping up, giving us that uh, uh, that perspective behind the enemy lines, if you will, D'Lo, about Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Good stuff today. Yeah, so I had a question for you as we had a minute here before the end of the show. I love questions for the RP3. Uh, Did want to ask if the the concessions within the ballpark at Charles Schwab, have we established any sort of legitimacy to that, or was it just the steakhouse dinner afterwards? So I have not sampled the concessions at Charles Schwab Field. I did sample concessions at not one but two minor league baseball parks. Um, (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. We stopped off. We stayed uh, in Northwest Arkansas, called a Naturals game. It was very cool. Great minor league baseball facility there. You know me and minor league baseball. I love it. I adore it. Of course. And then yesterday, in an off day, uh, the buddy that came with me, Tony Marks, shout out to him, the unofficial mayor of Villeplatte, Louisiana. He's a diehard Cubs fan. So we went to Des Moines, Iowa. By the way, the two hours from the Nebraska state line to Des Moines is filled with rolling hills of corn and wind turbines that is all that you can see the entire way for two hours and then all of a sudden there's a city and it was des moines and we got to see the iowa cubs play as well so i did sample the uh hot dogs is as tradition at both of those facilities right. and they were quite tasty yes well i'm happy to hear that i am certainly happy to hear that. <laughs> You're quite happy to hear that. Yes, did have a a great recommendation for a a steakhouse here in Omaha, uh, courtesy of our friend of the show, Glenn Gilbo, uh, the the famed uh, columnist and LSU reporter. So he gave us some good spots to go to. Today, obviously, the game will be tonight. We're going to check out the Rosenblatt Museum at the old site of the Rosenblatt Stadium. So we're going to go check that out and then – Going to make our way to Rocco's, where all, all right. those jello shots are on. Yeah, we're going to see. Sure. I, you know, I'll, I'll behave myself. Yeah, I will no, behave myself. We don't you have can any count on that. there, but I just uh, no, that'll be cool. <laughs> you can take a look and at the see, leaderboard. I'm sure may, may, you might be there when when you witness the record being broken. That could be something <laughs> special. Yeah, the, the record could be broken today. The way LSU fans have invaded Omaha. Uh, shout out to you, D'Lo, keeping things uh, held down and running smoothly back in the Evco Development Studios. Appreciate. That. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question and left their comments. Thanks to our guests. We'll be back on tomorrow, 6 to 9. D'Lo will be hosting the show. I'll come on as a guest to recap tonight's game between LSU and Wake Forest. But coming up next, Kevin Foote and Footnotes right here on the game.